0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Data-Driven Strength Podcast. Uh, Today, I will be chatting with Zach, and the goal of today's podcast is just to kind of give a a casual discussion related to our recent article titled, RIR and Muscle Growth, Putting Options Back on the Table. So whether you read this article or not, you should be good to go to listen to this podcast. Um, If you did read it, hopefully this adds some additional context um, and, and some additional discussion based on it. If you didn't read the article, that's totally fine. We're gonna kind of give a brief overview as well as I'm sure some some few tangents along the way. Um, the the first thing I want to emphasize going into this podcast is that this topic overall and kind of our thoughts on it are largely speculative. So you know it says in the the, the title of this podcast as well as the title of the article that we're we're primarily talking about muscle growth here or hypertrophy. Um, our thoughts about strength. Are a little bit more confident when it comes to proximity to failure. When it comes to muscle growth, uh there's a lot more unknowns. We 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 have a lot more questions. So um if you read the article, you'll you'll understand that there was definitely a speculative tone throughout. And we were very clear that hey, there's there's a lot to be uh there's a lot we still need to learn here. Um a lot of this is speculative. So um that definitely applies for this podcast and, and potentially even more so. Um, so again We'll probably be very cautious with our language throughout the podcast, but I just want to say that up front that this podcast is going to be largely speculative. Um, I'm sure we'll draw on some research, um, but I don't want it, it to be perceived that stuff we're saying today is is by any means set in stone based on the current research. Um, so with that out of the way, Zach, do you want to kind of kick us off with giving us a brief overview of the article and kind of potentially talking about like Current recommendations for proximity to failure and muscle growth, um, and then we can dive into to some of the nitty gritty
1: yeah, I think uh, kind of the overarching conversation around proximity to failure for muscle growth um, has largely been centered around the recommendations of training um, you know having most of your sets fall between the range of like zero to four repetitions in reserve um, and as we're going to talk about, we definitely don't think that's bad practical advice. Um, this just being our one thing that we we look into in immense detail and probably are a little bit too um biggest sticklers on in terms of the research um we we just thought that that might be taking some other options off the table that maybe um don't have to be um so we just wanted to kind of write this article kind of talk about that recommendation in general are there cases where that's definitely the way to go are there cases where you know what maybe this isn't as you know you know black and white as, as sometimes it may be uh, portrayed uh, and we can have some other tools in our tool belt to kind of you know leverage some different circumstances and still get um, optimal results in terms of growing muscles. So um, as Josh said, um, you know throughout this discussion we're going to be pretty cautious. There's a lot of assumptions we're making um, on, on some on some stuff. We think we can make a decent case, but of course this is subject to change this body of research is probably going to be shifting over the, the the next couple of years as more evidence is published. And we'll obviously be uh, kind of shifting our opinion based on uh, more and more stuff that comes out. So this discussion is far from settled, but uh, we'll be, uh, it's kind of an interesting one to kind of talk about and, and, and kind of uh, shift our understanding based on some of this data that we'll discuss. So um, that's kind of the overarching reason we kind of decided to, to write this article. So I don't know if you want to go into some of the specifics of the the points we made, Josh, but I'll, I'll kick it back to you from there.
0: Yeah. I think the, the next thing to talk about is when, well, let me, let me back up first. So again, we kind of frame this, this article as well as this podcast around, Hey, the, the general recommendation for maximizing muscle growth is to chain is to train with zero to four reps in reserve which again, we're, we're not saying is a bad recommendation. We think it's a really solid practical recommendation, but as the title suggests, we are trying to put options back on the table. Before we kind of talk about when it makes sense to explore RIRs greater than four, so farther from failure, I think it's important to first talk about when we think it's probably best to train closer to failure as your default. Um, the, the conclusions here are largely in agreement with, uh, Greg Knuckles article on this topic. Um, I believe it's called the evidence is lacking for effective reps, which is on stronger science.com. Very, very good article. And basically, um, what we see in the research is that, uh, when you look at single joint exercises, as well as, um, when you're using untrained individuals, that seems to be cases where, uh, training to failure has a benefit over training farther from failure. Now, again, as we've mentioned multiple times, the evidence is not settled here because it would be nice to see some studies in which they're primarily using multi-joint lifts on untrained individuals, because right now in the research, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, we can't really separate those variables, single joint, uh, exercises and untrained individuals. So the way I like to frame this is to think of proximity to failure as a give and a take. Um, so when, you know, when is the cost out, when does the cost, you know, not a big deal and when does the benefit, the potential benefit outweigh the cost? So if you're, if you're performing bicep curls or tricep extensions, taking those sets relatively close to failure might not have a massive cost. And it's probably more foolproof to train closer to failure. Um, so that's that's kind of the first the first thing we want to point here is that single joint exercises, you're probably more likely to be able to get away with training closer to failure. Um, also, again, based on the research right now, it seems like there's a trend that more untrained individuals can train closer to failure. Um, so that's, that's the first point. Zach, do you have anything to add there about the single joint and untrained individual point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to... To mention is like we'd we'd obviously like to see multi joint um, studies in untrained individuals, but we'd also like to see single joint exercises in trained individuals. I think that's something right. um, we'd also like to see to see if we can tease out whether the the small difference that we do see in the research is that based on training status, is that based on the exercise type, or is it based on both or neither that kind of thing? Tease that out a little bit further. That's that's just another thing. Um, I would definitely like to see. Um, as far as the other things you said, I think the kind of cost benefit analysis is definitely the way we like to frame it. Like <laughs> um, a set of bicep curls is not going to have the same uh, fatigue cost taking that to failure as a set of squats or deadlifts or something like that, which is uh, largely how we tried to frame the conversation in the article is that primarily our arguments are going to be applying to multi-joint, uh, particularly free weight movements that we'll talk about in a little bit, but primarily multi-joint lifts, um, for, for that reason, um, based on the research, but then also some theoretical considerations. Um, so yeah, I think that that was a good, um, kind of overall, uh, topic to start off with is that single joint exercises definitely, uh, I guess exercises are not created equal. It's probably the best way to say it there.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so again, I think, and this is actually, we're kind of skipping ahead here on the outline by mentioning this, but I think it, it ties in well here is that there doesn't seem to necessarily be like a major harm of training close to failure. Um, again, going back to the title of the article, saying we're trying to put options back on the table. And, and, and we can't point to evidence to say that, hey, training farther from failure is superior. We're just saying, hey, there are potential cases where this is a, an option that might be efficacious and might make sense for certain individuals. Um, so that basically the way I'm tying this into single joint exercises is it's probably a little bit more foolproof from a muscle growth perspective to bias training closer to failure. So that's why, you know, given the uncertainty in the research, um, I think it's probably better to like, if you're going to, Miss in a certain direction. I'd probably rather have you accidentally train closer to failure than accidentally train farther from failure. Um, you know, I, I just think that's important to to consider. Is it's not like we have a ton of studies showing, hey, if you train with five to seven RIR, that's better than training with zero to four RIR. That's definitely right. not the case. Um, we're just saying there's there's the proof of concept in the research right now, based on our interpretation, that there appears to be. at least a few studies in which training farther from failure can lead to similar growth as training closer to failure.
1: That's really all we're saying. One of the studies I want to mention that often is discussed as kind of like training farther from failure is better is the the Carroll study. Um, And and one of the major things that uh, needs to be discussed with that study, uh, and so just to briefly talk about it, there was one group Um, called the relative intensity group that trained pretty far from failure. It was a very, very wide range and it was estimated in terms of RIR. They didn't actually report it versus a group that was uh, called the rep max group where they kind of did, I would say ascending RPs kind of like eight, nine. And then the last set that was a failure or something like that. I can't recall exactly what it was, but it was, it was similar to that. Um, And the, the relative intensity group, with the group training considerably farther from failure did like quite a bit better than the group training close to failure. But the major caveat there is that they're also doing sprint training. Um, and so if you kind of think about this cost benefit analysis, once again, and kind of the overall fatigue of that equation um, in the granted, it wasn't a ton of stuff, but it was just, it's just another variable to consider um, that, you know, when you're throwing extra fatigue from like sprint training on top of it, that um, that might kind of show why in, in some cases training from failure could be better. But I would, like you said, Josh, and the vast majority of the research that I'm aware of, training closer to failure is almost never worse. So it's definitely kind of the foolproof option and which I think ties in nicely to the fact that it seems to be a slight edge for untrained individuals, which is something we've Mm -hmm. talked about before is kind of having that bro phase sometime when you start in your career, not only because there seems to be some benefits for that. And we could speculate for reasons why there Um, I'm not going to just because it's, it's, it's uh yeah, it's it's a messy topic that I'm sure there's a ton of things that contribute to it. But nonetheless, having that period that you kind of gradually work up to training some sets close to failure, I think is going to set you up, um, for the rest of your training career positively, regardless whether the kind of the mechanism of action of being beneficial is. So I think that's just something to really hammer home on. Like you said, Josh, is that there really are not many cases when training to failure for hypertrophy at least is, is worse. So it, it definitely could be kind of foolproof in that regard. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. I think, using that Carroll study as a jumping off point that can, again, it's just one study. I don't want to over-conclude based on that, but, you know, given that they were performing the additional sprint training and that was the one case where training farther from failure seemed to provide a benefit. Um, again, it was superior to training to failure. Maybe that can give us some clues as to when that cost benefit analysis would lean in favor of staying further from failure. So, you know, our our audience is primarily going to be individuals interested in strength and hypertrophy um but you know if if you also work with um team sport athletes um stuff like that that's that's something to keep in mind as well as you know when you only have so many resources uh, uh for the individual all their their training demands and all their sport demands you know that's something to keep in mind is is hey we can probably get some some pretty solid muscle growth Uh, from their training while staying further from failure and and potentially at a a lower fatigue cost. Um, And I think a a potential kind of tentative or cautious extrapolation is also in periods of life stress. If you are a strength athlete or a physique athlete, Um, hey, I might be able to handle more training volume and actually achieve the desired training stimulus um, if I'm in a period of high life stress.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting you say that, Josh, because I think um, my mind goes there immediately, like how individual this thing is. Um, and when we talk about this all the time, like, you know, in a period of high life stress, kind of the point that you were leveraging there, at least I believe that what you were trying to say is like, in general, this kind of lower fatigue, lower average RP training is going to be a little bit less overall fatiguing. So you could probably benefit from a little bit more work in times of high life stress. But I think it's also interesting that I've had, you know, quite a few clients at this point. Um, at at sometimes they say that the the amount of unracks or the amount of sets that they're doing regardless of the fact that they're considerably um, easier on paper um, seems to be more fatiguing than doing you know a couple sets to a pretty high rbe the one thing we have on our outline here that we're going to talk on is just this seems to be a pretty individual thing and i would not be surprised if we get more research in the future to kind of maybe explore some of the mechanisms of why Even anecdotally, you know, over the course of, you know, iron history or whatever, um, some people swear by training close to failure is is the way to go, and that's how you get the best gains, whereas other people are like, nope, this slightly submaximal higher volume approach is definitely the way to go, and we're not the first people to say this, people have been saying this a long time, but I wouldn't be surprised that there's some mechanisms of action there that probably are a combination of physiological stuff, but also some psychological stuff. Um, you know, some people maybe just didn't really, really enjoy the feeling of taking a set close to failure and that ultimately benefits their outcomes or kind of vice versa. So I think just, it's, it's interesting that you say that because I, I think on paper, it definitely is going to be less fatiguing for most people, but then other people that really just absolutely hate doing a ton of sets or not a ton of sets, but more sets than than the other approach might uh, find that to be more fatiguing. So it just highlights to me that how individual this is and and that some people probably just simply respond uh, better to training close to failure, which is why kind of the overarching theme of this discussion, like we said, it's speculative. But also, as we talk about all the time, if you have an individual data point or multiple data points and an individual experience that kind of recommends you to go, um, slightly counter to what like the theoretical discussion may recommend, um, always use that individual data to kind of supersede, um, you know, these evidence-based starting points, I would say, but, um, but yeah, that's just something I've noticed both in coaching, but also just talking to people that, um, the, the fatigue kind of from the slower RP higher set kind of training does seem to be kind of individual, uh, counter to what the research may suggest. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
0: No, I think this is just an example of the fact that you can kind of explain your way to any conclusion you'd want when we, in the absence of the actual empirical data, uh, data to, yeah. to robustly indicate one way or the other. I, I totally agree with you. I think from a time perspective, um, you could, especially for hypertrophy only training, that's, that's a key point is that for a strength athlete in a period of high life stress, you probably want to find a way to get a decent peak intensity exposure, right? So there's some time considerations there, but if your goal is only hypertrophy, that, that probably would be a good default in periods of high life stress. Cause that'll probably coincide with periods of low time availability. And you can, you know, do some sort of, of, you know, antagonist superset failure protocols or, or and or myorep protocols taking them pretty close to failure. And that's probably going to be a really good solution given the, the, the the circumstances of the individual. But again, I think you can kind of make the argument either way. And it's going to depend whether they're a strength athlete, who of course also cares about hypertrophy outcomes, or if they're a hypertrophy only athlete. So I agree, man, I don't think we can say definitively either way, there's probably going to be some individual differences there from both a training response perspective, and also just the the psychological approach that they prefer. Um, Okay, the next thing I want to touch on here is kind of why we like I we, we, we probably get labeled as the low RP guys frequently but I think I it's important to talk about why or or when we think it is important to train close to failure um because again by this point in the the podcast we hope it's clear that we're just trying to put the option back on the table we're not saying this is superior we're not saying we do this year-round We're just saying it's another option and and, and another tool to have in your tool belt. Um, So I think I I, want to briefly talk about how we like to periodize things to kind of cover ourselves for the uncertainty in the research right now. Um, So I think it it largely comes down to two things. Um, Well, actually, it's just one thing. So it's basically we like to periodize the proximity to failure, more or less. And what that allows us to do is that, that it doesn't put all of our eggs in one basket right so if it turns out that there is a a large benefit to training closer to failure that just hasn't been elucidated yet in the research which i don't think is going to be the case i don't think based on the research we have right now i think again i i i wouldn't hedge my bets in that direction but i'm also not going to put all my eggs in in the other basket so that's why when far out from competition we still have our athletes you know train with a high degree of metabolic stress and a closer proximity to failure just in case that is beneficial maybe there is an additive effect to training with high degree of of metabolic stress and you're leaving hypertrophy outcomes on the table if you stick with this lower rpe uh, approach year-round so again we're putting an option back on the table but I think it's also important to account for the uncertainty within how you program. And we choose to do that through periodization. So when farther out from competition, when hypertrophy is the primary focus, we like to keep things a little bit closer to failure. And then when we transition uh, closer to a strength phase uh, or excuse me, closer to a, a, a testing session or a meet, we can pull back on the average RPE um, and, and, and still be relatively confident that the hypertrophy stimulus is still high. Um, but again, we're, we're not optimizing training for that. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there. Zach, I don't know if you have anything to add.
1: Yeah, not too much. I I think it's just acknowledging that (laughs) we have a decent idea, um, on kind of the mechanisms of what grows muscle, but there's probably a ton that we don't understand. Um, you know, metabolic stress, what exactly on the fiber level is necessary to kind of elicit the, the chemical response that, that stimulates muscle growth, we don't really know. Um, I think you know we have kind of practical, uh, practical recommendations to kind of get us to what makes sense. But at the end of the day, I, I think we're still all kind of grasping straws on exactly what happens on the muscular level. And there's probably a ton of feedback loops that we don't even know exist yet. So like you said, I think it's important to kind of hedge our bets And we kind of have an attitude to kind of just be just to be sure, um, probably because especially because this is something I always come back to is that there there is, I would say, pretty strong anecdotes that lean in favor of training close to failure kind of from people that have been uh, lifting weights for a really long time. So like when in doubt, I'm probably kind of leaning towards that direction as opposed to the other direction, just because um, that seems to be what most lifters that have gotten really big and strong seem to seem to have done. And that's obviously not always a, um, always the best way to come to to a belief, but you know, Dr. Helms always says kind of success leaves clues. And I think that is probably a pretty, pretty decent way to hedge our bets in this discussion as well as just. And and I think the other thing to say is that I think that kind of periodization model is like I said in the last point is kind of, it's pretty individual. I don't think there's an exact RPE range that we're talking about there. Like for some people that can tolerate sets pretty close to failure and they enjoy it, that may be taking some high bar squat sets to a nine RPE. Um, And one thing to really state there is, you know, like you said, Josh, we're labeled as the low RPE guys a lot, but I would say one of the things I'm most on my clients about is making sure that their hypertrophy sets that, you know, we're kind of uh, really focusing on effort on and execution are making sure that those are actually the RPs that, uh, that are assigned. And before we increase volume, before we increase set count, let's make sure that those sets are really high quality before we kind of move anywhere else. So I think that's kind of the cornerstone to all of our kind of ideas is that we are kind of presupposing that, you know, what a really challenging hard set is. And then from there, we can kind of prescribe some of this work that's like five, six reps in reserve and still think that that's a pretty solid stimulus. So I think that's just something to hit on, that this is going to be pretty individual. Like I said, for some individuals, their high RP training may be uh, up that nine range on some things, whereas under other individuals, maybe that's like a seven RP because they have had a history of uh, some nagging aches and pains or something like that, that decreases their tolerance a little bit. So their kind of periodization model and the exact endpoints of where everything ends up as a little bit different. And I think the, the same can be said on kind of this lower fatigue stuff is, you know, some some individuals are really going to lean into it and like are doing back-offs, singles and doubles on stuff uh, to really optimize that. Whereas other individuals maybe seem to, to need a little bit of that higher set fatigue stimulus to keep the strength or hypertrophy strain rolling. Um, and so maybe the reps per set are a little bit higher and we don't lean into it quite as much. Um, and that could be for, again, for multiple reasons, but it's just... The the overarching point there is, like you said, we're periodizing things to really hedge our bets to make sure we're not completely ignoring stuff um, that we we don't even know exists yet um, and and, and kind of going from. So, yeah, I think I I agree with that. Um, Don't have too much to add from there.
0: Well, do you want to go down the mechanism rabbit hole any further or should we dive into the the main points we made in the article and chat about those
1: we can come back to it at the end if i can figure out a good way to say without taking this completely off the rails but let's go to the let's go to the main points first
0: all right cool so within the article we kind of broke it down into three reasons why we think lower rpe or higher rir sets may have some utility um the first one is less fatigue per set. Um, this one is pretty straightforward, and, and it's you know the the obvious one that comes to mind when you think of oh why would I even consider not training to failure? Well, I think everybody, or, or I wouldn't say everybody, but probably most people listening to this are on board of hey, it doesn't seem like the the fatigue cost of taking something all the way to failure is worth the um, additional stimulus you get at least for like a multi joint exercise. I think most people are on board with that. So, you know, you can kind of by extension say, okay, maybe if I, if I train in this four to six RIR range, instead of two or three RIR, maybe I can gain those. I can, I can, you know, reduce the fatigue per set even more. Maybe my volume tolerance is higher, that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I, I definitely wouldn't say the research on proximity to failure and the the fatigue from those sets is like 100% set in stone overwhelmingly convincing I think there's some pretty dang good indication that it is disproportionately fatiguing but I would I am looking forward to seeing further research in that area um, but I think both anecdotally and based on uh, you know some of the research we have right now it does seem like the I, I would make the argument that the fi- fatigue doesn't necessarily increase linearly as you approach failure. It's probably disproportionate to some degree. Now, I don't know, maybe if you have been training this way forever, maybe it is kind of a linear increase in fatigue. Whereas if you take somebody that's training farther from failure year round, maybe it's a more disproportionate um, relationship. I'm not really sure how that, that works out, but I think I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that on average, there's going to be a disproportionate increase in fatigue. Um, with an increasing proximity to failure, or or as you get closer to failure within a set. So the basic idea here is just that hey, maybe if you're doing a true RP five set, which again I I want to emphasize is that as hard as a true RP eight, no, but it's still a decently hard set. You're not sleepwalking through the gym. A true five reps and reserve set can be uh, decently challenging, and maybe you do five sets of five instead of three sets of five, and maybe that's in that positive. So that's really the basic idea here. It's pretty straightforward. Um, is that you know you can um you know just kind of break the work up into more sets and maybe your total volume uh your, your total volume tolerance is greater and there might be a net positive there for some individuals but again we're not saying that you should do five sets of five at rp4 on your bicep curls um we're mostly talking about again free weight multi-joint exercises in trained individuals is where i think this this could be helpful so You know, maybe somebody is uh, a strength athlete is far out from competition and they're primarily focused on accumulating, um, volume work to grow their quads through a hack squat, but you also want them to, uh, you know, get some practice on the competition lift. So the, the competition squat, um, but you don't want them to get, you know, super fatigued from that going into their volume work. Maybe that's a case where you prescribe some sets. Um, a little bit farther from failure, still provide a very uh, robust hypertrophy stimulus without completely uh, fatiguing them for the rest of the session. And then they can have uh, really productive sets uh, in the rest of that session.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have too much to add there. The, the couple things I wanted to mention is just based on the, the like the research that we're drawing from to make these conclusions. Um, to my knowledge, there hasn't been um, a volume equated a uh, study that kind of looks at these traditional fatigue metrics that we're talking about, which may or may not be exactly what we're uh, discussing, like muscle damage or velocity at a given load. Um, there has been, to my knowledge, a volume equated study that kind of looks at progressively different proximities to failure. So that is kind of an assumption we're making is that this is somewhat of a progressive relationship. Whereas, you know, if I train to failure, that's considerably more fatiguing training the seven to nine RP, that's a little bit less fatiguing and so on with four to six and lower than that. That is somewhat of an assumption we're making. I think that fits with most people's practical experience, but it is something to note um, there. And then the other thing I was just going to say is, like I kind of said, is this the fatigue that we're talking about all the time? I don't know. I, I think it maps with people's experience. So I think that's something to take into account, but it's just another thing to consider is that is the, the muscle damage and the kind of velocity performance, which is often the way that this is measured. Is that exactly what we're talking about in the gym? I don't know. I, I think, however, though, I like Josh said, I think this maps to people's experience pretty well, which is generally what we're concerned with when we're talking about this. So um, that's just something else to mention. But the kind of the next point that we'll kind of roll into here is that um, the, reason, the reason we kind of talk about this in the context of multi-joint lifts particularly instead of single joint lifts is that we think when you're completing a multi-joint lift, especially if you get closer to failure. so if you just think about the last time you took a set of squats to failure, the last few reps, when you're getting closer to failure, probably look pretty different than the first few reps of a given load. And so what we call this in the article is essentially when you're training farther from failure on multi-joint lifts, you're going to have less technical deviation. Um, and because of that, if we believe we'll talk about why we kind of come to this in a little bit but If we believe we can have a sufficient stimulus for muscle growth early in a set, there might be another reason to do so because those last few reps as we get really close to failure might be altering the joint angles and altering the the muscles that are receiving the primary stimulus from the exercise um, at the end of the set, making each one of those reps not only uh more fatiguing in a broad sense but also maybe just really really inefficient for the for the target muscles so like again going back to our squat example if your knees slide back a ton and you're using the squat to train your quads in those last few reps are you really performing a ton of productive work i don't really know but i think that's something to to kind of question in in the sense that um, you know if these last few reps close to failure are are significantly altering the technique that I'm purposely uh, trying to emulate to train the target muscle groups the most efficiently, then maybe that's something to take into account.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's really well said, man. Um, There's some EMG research in particular that I think is interesting. I'm not going to say it makes a case that you maximize your rate of return when you're super far from failure. But basically the, the broad strokes of this research indicates that as you go from a lighter load, let's say 50% of one rep max up to a heavier load, let's say a hundred percent of one rep max, uh, let's take the quads or let's, let's take the pecs in the bench. For example, if you just look at the EMG amplitude from, uh, the pecs as you go from 50% to, to 100%, and this is just kind of like a single repetition, right? It's not necessarily like sets to failure. Um, the the EMG amplitude from the PEC seems to max out around like 70%, I believe, uh, off the top of my head, somewhere in there. But point being is it doesn't increase linearly all the way up to 100%. Now, that's a pretty big jump to say, oh, that means that you maximize your rate of return in a multi-rep set at a given percentage of one RM farther from failure. It's just interesting and I think it's something to keep in mind and it's kind of a proof of concept that, hey, when you are performing a multi-joint lift, and if the goal is to grow a certain muscle group, so if you're just trying to grow your pecs from the bench press, there's other considerations there, and your rate of return might actually diminish as you get closer to failure. Um, I'm, I, don't, I don't want that to be a blanket statement that you can just apply unanimously to all multi-joint exercises, but I think that's another consideration to keep in mind. Um, you know, I think that also ties into what Zach was saying is, and I think it it ultimately comes down to how you're defining failure. Are you defining failure as simply getting from point A to point B? If you're trying to do a, a, a high bar squat to grow your quads, you can get from point A to point B a bunch of ways. So are you saying that just your ability to get from point A to point B is zero reps in reserve? Or are you saying, you know, once you can stay in your knees out of the hole, you know, your knees don't slide back a ton, the tension is biased to your quads as much as possible, and when you can no longer do that, that is zero reps in reserve. Those are two totally different sets. Um, so, if again, it all depends how you are defining failure, especially, and that's why we're we're largely framing this around free weight multi-joint exercises. Um, you know, it's it's like if if you're defining failure as your ability to get from point A to point B, and you're doing uh, you know, very strict high bar squats, and, and you're not getting super close you know you're not grinding through reps because you're not changing your your technique that might be six seven eight reps in reserve depending on how you're def- defining failure so it's just important to keep in mind that you can't really that that's why we're a little bit hesitant to make bl- blanket statements of hey this is our record this is the data driven strength recommended RPE range it's like well how are you how are you defining what zero reps in reserve is? Um, so that's just another thing to keep in mind is if you're saying that failure is simply getting from point A to point B, there might be cases with free weight, multi-joint exercises where it's probably best to be really far from failure, just because the goal is to, to bias attention tension to the target muscles. Um, and I think that also ties into, uh, you know, different, you know, again, I, I, I think this is really related to emphasizing that this is in free weight multi-joint exercises because say you're in a hack squat machine where you have less degrees of freedom um you know a a a one or two rep and reserve set there is it might be less fatiguing than a one or two rep and reserve set on a high bar back squat because you can't shift the loading demands as much with a hack squat so again it's just it's just important to keep in mind you know, I don't want you to take from this podcast. Oh, these guys are saying to to train farther from failure than four reps in reserve. It's just all this context is really important when thinking about your program design. Um, so yeah, Zach, you got got anything to add there?
1: Uh, I had one more thing, but now I'm grasping for it. Um, I mean, I, I largely agree with that. Like, it's it's again, we're not saying that zero zero to four reps in reserve isn't a good practical recommendation. It's just like. There's so much context that, that goes in. Yeah, there's so much context that goes into that question. How are you defining failure? What exercises are you using? Um, are you allowing for tactical deviation, and to what degree? Like, there's just right. there's a there's a ton of ton of things uh, that that go into that. So it's it's very hard to um, nail down that answer. But yeah. Oh, I, I think I was what I was going to say was um, I think it's it's interesting to kind of look at. There's like some communities that have like really themselves on training close to failure. Um, and it's just interesting to go. I, I believe I believe the one that kind of has had a history, um, like the Nautilus and Mike Metzer era, um, of the high-intensity training kind of crowd, going and looking at some of their stuff like uh, on failure is very, very interesting to me. And it's just it's it, I think it's a night and day world for a lot of people that get into like Sports RPE, and like that's like the first thing they hear about, and have never really had that phase and don't really know what a, such, a true failure is like. Um, one of the researchers that does a really good job of describing this in, in, in his work is Dr. James Steele and Dr. James Fitcher. Um, they do a really, really good job and are really like to dive into the nitty gritty of defining intensity of effort. Um, and, uh, actually Dr. Steele has some good videos on YouTube of like going through a workout of training to failure that I think are really, really interesting. And I've sent them to a few clients before to kind of understand exactly, uh, the kind of effort a true set to failure is. So it's just something that made me think of that. Um, so, so yeah, we can roll to the next point point. that wasn't totally relevant, but I thought it was something to, something to touch on.
0: Yeah. Just, just to put a bow on that, like, especially this is largely anecdotal. Um, I don't think doing free weight. Lower body exercises to failure is is going to work for most people. Like it's just yeah, <laughs> it's
1: not safe. Yeah, that's another thing we didn't touch on.
0: Safety, yeah, but yeah. J- just from a okay, if we put safety aside, which you shouldn't put safety aside in the gym, <laughs> but um, if you put that aside and just think about like the fatigue from that and what it takes to go for it to like true failure in the sense that you can't get from point A to point B, um, you're not going to be doing many sets within that session or within
1: that week. That- um, that's the thing, man. Like I've seen so many programs that have like um, like repeats at an eight RPE. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm not saying that's impossible, but like if that's a legit two reps in reserve, like I, the, the example I always like to give is like, imagine doing a set of like six to 10 reps on squat to legit failure. Imagine how you feel after that set. Like you're yeah. legit on the ground in general for like seven to 15 minutes waiting to, to, to go into the next set. And that might be an exaggeration, but you get the point. A, a true eight RP is two reps before that. That is not that much different, but like people are like, yeah, I did five sets at five sets of eight at an eight RP and like, just like kind of yeah. shrug it off. I'm like, dude, that's a, that's a hard workout and people just kind of shrug it right to the side. So um, yeah, it's just something, something to think about. I,
0: I try to emphasize uh, to my clients that if I'm giving you four sets, of like a hack squat to an rp8 and, and you feel like okay after those four sets that you're you're probably not taking these two to an rp8 like that's that's a very tough protocol and i think people just kind of throw that down onto the page oh rp8 you know we're not trying to failure it's going to be easy um i'll get my volume and i'll move on like you said i think and I think this is potentially some why there is can be some confusion with the stuff we talk about is we're often emphasizing how hard a true RPA set is um, when you have focus um, and intent to, to really put the tension on the target muscle. I think that's really, really important to keep in mind. Um, so yeah, I think let's quickly touch on the last point here and then we can wrap up. This it, we, We've been pretty speculative throughout this uh, podcast and throughout the article but this is probably the most speculative. Um, so the last point is that low fatigue training, so kind of this uh, this training farther from failure, may potentiate future traditional hypertrophy training, traditional just being, you know, closer to failure. Um, kind of the premise for this is simply the fact that high set fatigue work. So, you know, when you're accumulating a lot of repetitions within a set, you're you're accumulating some metabolic stress in the local musculature that you're training. Just, just kind of subjectively, it seems to only work for a limited period of time. Um, so, again, I this is very, very speculative. Something that we're interested in potentially exploring, or just thinking more about, or getting the conversation going is maybe it's it's best to kind of periodize these strategies. So, even if your goal is simply uh, hypertrophy, maybe you you kind of linearly go from uh, these lower interset fatigue phase protocols um, and then transition them up to a higher intercept fatigue protocol do we think this is going to lead to greater outcomes than just kind of keeping it static i have no idea it's just something that's interesting and and we think there might be a rationale once we accumulate some some more data on the topic so uh, zach I'll, i'll pass it over to you to expand
1: yeah, I think uh, when when we were writing the article, like one thing Josh and I have kind of said to each other multiple times that I kind of was remembering when I was getting to this section of the article was, um, you know, mile reps, drop sets, uh, compound sets. I think is like the NFCA definition of like the same exercise back to back. So I get some points for that.
0: I can never uh, keep it straight, man.
1: <laughs> I think that's I think that's right. Um, those those kind of things, like Josh said, they they kind of feel like they get stale after like. A relatively short period of time now standard caveats that getting stale feeling like it's working does that have any indication of the actual effectiveness of the protocols i have no idea so that just understand that's a huge grain of salt that it's a completely subjective determination like yeah these my reps these whatever don't feel like they're they're kind of getting the same effect anymore and kind of one thing we thought about is like you know, just like any other adaptation of the body, the, the more you're exposing yourself to the de- demands of a given protocol. And in this example, um, that kind of acute bout of metabolic stress, you're probably gonna adapt to that. And your buffering capacity or 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 whatever mechanism it may be probably improves to some degree, and now that isn't as stressful. So we just kind of thought, like, yeah, that's interesting that our subjective experience kind of demonstrates that. And then there was some recent research that admittedly has a ton of limitations, particularly uh, a study by Carvalho et al. Now, one difference between what kind of what we're talking about and that study is that it was also lower volume and uh, lower set fatigue. And the lower set fatigue uh, was uh, created by just increasing the load a bunch. So the reps per set just decreased, um, but the sets were static. So the overall, the training volume was considerably lower. So it's not exactly kind of like what we recommend in the article, but um, it did seem to help the the hypertrophy kind of when they came back to normal hypertrophy training. Again, another caveat, the absolute gains in muscle thickness were extremely small. So it really wasn't that huge of an effect, but it was just something that kind of caught our eye and, and kind of in general, we've been talking about resensitization quite a bit um, and it just kind of, you know, got us thinking if you kind of put all these kind of anecdotes together, um, if you decrease, you know, intracellular fatigue for a little bit of time and then you kind of progressively increase it, which again, we were not the first people to say this. Um, a lot of people have been recommending kind of a descending RAR model for a long time. Dr. Mike Isertel has been, that's kind of their, their world within a mesocycle. You kind of decrease the RAR. Um, but kind of the, our spin on it was we can just start way lower than people typically do, um, because we're using these heavier loads that allow you to do so. Um, and, and in that time, if we have a period of training where we're essentially minimizing, uh, intraset fatigue maybe that's going to allow us to disproportionately benefit once we go to more traditional hypertrophy training where the intraset fatigue is considerably higher as josh said super super speculative that's just something we kind of uh threw in there as, as something just kind of putting our anecdotes together and some of this theoretical evidence could seem to be a good idea and generally we're pro periodization for more logistical reasons and i think adding some kind of variability into people's training, I think just kind of gives you somewhere to progress and somewhere to look that often makes it a little bit more fun. And if it's more fun in general, focus and intent is better. And if we can leverage those psychological expectations that are positive, generally our outcomes are going to be better. So it's just something we kind of threw together there as as a potential kind of way to apply all these ideas and not, and not uh, take it as all or nothing, which is something we really, really want to stress. Is that these are simply strategies and they're simply tools your tool belt it isn't something that you have to go out tomorrow like josh said in every single one of your sets is in this low fatigue strategy including bicep curls tricep extensions and lateral raises that's not what we're saying Um, you can use these when the situation seems to be appropriate when you can you know spare a little bit of fatigue and maybe increase of the quality of a later exercise of a similar muscle group um, or maybe make a a particular session a little bit lower fatigue throughout your training week or something like that there's a ton of different utility to this stuff but the point being it's not all for nothing all or nothing and i think a lot of times josh and i also don't prescribe this within a session or within a protocol as all or nothing i think something we've slowly migrated to is kind of these tester sets and then kind of these little mini cluster backoffs so on on your squat. Let's say I'm going to have Josh work up to a set of eight at a seven to eight RPE. What that'll do in effect is provide a pretty decent uh, estimation of your 10 RM load for the day. And if you've read kind of the article, you know that that's kind of where we're confident these, uh, these low fatigue strategies can be pretty effective. Um, and then from there, I might have him perform like little mini cluster sets in sets of four with the same load. That's going to, you know, allow him to accumulate training volume, but also do so with uh, assuming a, a lower fatigue per set. So, again, that that kind of mixes both worlds, right? There's one set that's pretty traditional hypertrophy training with some higher fatigue, but then we're kind of combining some of these uh, lower fatigue strategies to to hopefully um, get some additional benefits. But that, I just wanted to. Tied up with that. But Josh, I don't know if anything else to add.
0: No, That's well said, man. I think just really emphasizing that it's not all or nothing. Um, we're not saying this is better. We're saying this is another option. Um, even if, even if it becomes five, if you're a hypertrophy only athlete and it becomes 5% of your programming because it makes sense for one or two specific exercises, that's probably a good way to go right now. Um, we'd probably have you accidentally train a little bit closer to failure than train farther from failure. Um, But this is an option when it makes sense, when the cost benefit analysis makes sense. Um, We just kind of want to transition the overall discussion in the community from, hey, should we be training with one RAR or three RAR to, hey, what about sets further from failure? What other considerations are there in that case? And, you know, how do we kind of make up for less, less volume per set? All these kind of things. We're just saying we think the range should potentially be expanded upon, just when we consider hypertrophy training in general. Um, so that's really all all we're trying to say. And hopefully this this sparks some thought for you. Hopefully uh, you can apply some of these when you, when you think it makes sense. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, we're just going to quickly plug our um, go go forward, Zach.
1: I'll just say, if you want to read the full article, make sure to go check it out on our site to get a little bit more additional context and uh, read probably our like specific arguments for all this kind of stuff if you want to, to get a little bit better idea if, if you were uh, missing any of the details.
0: Yep. And uh, as, I, as I was saying, uh, shout out to everybody in the Individualized Programming uh, group. It's It's been pretty awesome to see the response so far. Um, seeing how everybody has been able to, you know whether they're interested in just getting good programming at, at a reasonable price and, and, and get some degree of of uh, access to to us through the private Facebook group to get their questions answered. or if they want to kind of use this the programming we provide as a sandbox and, and make some adjustments. It's been really cool to see how how people are are adjusting some of their training and all these questions they're asking. I think it's been really, really cool. For example, in webinar number two, I talked about um, really uh, it, it was about psychological periodization and I talked about how important it is to nail your RPE ratings for the hypertrophy focus movements in the hypertrophy phase of the training cycle. And we've had multiple people just talking about how, how they're bringing more intent to these exercises than they ever have been before. And I think it's going to pay off. So it's been really cool to see how receptive everybody has been to, to kind of the stuff we're putting out around the the product. Um, if you're interested in, in signing up, go check it out on our website.
1: Yeah, I, it's also been interesting. We've seen some pretty cool utility of some of the ideas in this article, too, um, with some of the other exercises that people find particularly fatiguing that maybe I wouldn't have thought of originally like i know one individual was is going to use some of these ideas on their back work cuz they find in a, uh, a strength phase that that significantly perturbs their uh, squat and their deadlift training so it's, it's it's been really cool just to kind of see um, you know come at some of this information that you've been putting out come to fruition of people kind of using that sandbox feature so yeah i just want to echo that
0: yeah um cool if if you have a quick second to leave us a rating and review on iTunes that would be much appreciated uh, share it on social media, um, subscribe to the podcast, all that good stuff. We appreciate you listening. Um, have a great day.